This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities, from how to not get fired to negotiating severance. We discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave that professional world alone. So have I told you about Bo? I don't think so. No. Bo wanted to make his own way in the world. He recently graduated college, and he started interviewing for jobs in the finance sector. Six months of searching, six months of nothing. He couldn't land a job. He ends up having this heart-to-heart with his dad. Okay. And his father tells him about a promising role he heard about at the bank Morgan Stanley. Good bank. He interviews for the job. Next day, he gets a call with an employment offer. Wow. It felt so easy compared to his other interviews. He's thinking to himself, finally someone willing to give him a chance, right? So a week goes by and some of his colleagues invite him out to a regular happy hour on Friday. And one of his colleagues asks how he likes it so far. And Bo responds, you know, so far so good. I mean, I'm sort of familiar with the culture. And the colleague responds, oh, did you work here before? Bo puts down his drink, his eyes dart a bit, and he kind of whispers, no, actually, My dad's an executive here. Oh, man. (laughs) Not the look you want to give your coworkers on your first outing. Okay. Hey, maybe it was the drink, but Bo wasn't as quiet as he thought because when he looked up, everybody at the table was staring at him. Ouch. He probably was thinking to himself, I don't want to really let them know. Like, I shouldn't say it. Yeah. It's a corporate Nepo baby. Ooh. There he is. And of course, now everybody yeah. at the table knows. What I find most surprising about this story, yeah, actually unbelievable, is that the father would be a corporate exec at Morgan Stanley for 20 years and not in that six months have done this sooner. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised his father wasn't more insistent earlier on to just get him in the pipeline. I can imagine Bo having that conversation that you're talking about, where he's like, his dad's like, hey, we got a shoe in here, ready to go. And Bo being like, look, dad, I'm going to be my own man. Like, I'm going to go out there on my own. And he does it month after month. And after about six months of trying to be your own man, next thing you know, you got to have the heart to heart with dad. Well, he has that card to to play, At least he does, yes. He's got that safety net. At least he has that. I mean, how many folks have gone to month six, month eight, geez, a year into the job hunting process, and they're still sitting on the sidelines. So- I think that's where some of the uncomfortable nature of the conversation with the coworkers comes in is that he did have that card and you called it, Leah, corporate nepo baby. Yeah. I thought <laughs> you were like cronyism, nepotism. Yeah. So maybe that's a good segue here because I think for the purpose of the show, we really want to talk about legacy admissions at universities. But what we discovered is that there's a parallel here of legacy admissions in the form of nepotism or cronyism that may or may not exist in corporate America. And I think Bo's story hits on that perfectly. There's basically a consensus that, and I think, Leigh, you hit on the nose, that cronyism or nepotism in corporate space is not good for society. Most corporations even have internally adopted governance rules where they ask their employees to avoid nepotism, even though they're not legally required to, because there's just like a consensus, like, yeah, this thing is bad. It's really odd that what's clearly socially bad in a corporate context and where corporations have self-adopted these governance rules doesn't apply in the university admission context, at least for the better part of the last two decades. 
the conversation we want to have today is all this is about to change. Ever since the recent Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action that ruled that race cannot be a factor in university admissions, there's like really been a groundswell and mobilization questioning the legal merits of legacy-based admissions. The truth is most of us would agree legacy, the term legacy kind of feels like a whitewashed term or euphemism for what is at face value, just prioritizing applicants who have family connections to alumni or university donors. So let's use that background to kind of dig in here. How are university legacy applicants similar or dissimilar to corporate legacy hires in the case of Bo? You guys had no way of knowing this, but this is actually something I'm really passionate about. I just started this week reading this book, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. So when you emailed me that this is what we were talking about, I was like, oh my gosh. I've got my background working in MBA admissions at an Ivy League school. I went to a public university where... I will admit I was a legacy, but I would argue that legacies don't mean as much in in public universities, but I'm very anti-legacy admissions for a lot of reasons. So Let me put you on the spot really quick, Leah. Had you applied blind, do you think you would have got in? The reason I think I would have is because not to call out other family members, but they also applied and didn't get in. (laughs) (laughs) For me, this dives right into this idea, what she said, which is, okay, what makes them different from sort of the corporate space? Well, one of the things is we got to talk about the private university and the public university that she's talking about. And that has a lot to do with public dollars. Yeah. I think the biggest difference between private universities and private corporations is that private universities are still in the game of acquiring public forms of financial assistance more so than private corporations. So if you're a private corporation and you're looking to beef up your capital table, raise some money, subsidize something, you're usually going out and getting a loan on the market, getting a bond. If you're a private university, you're luckily subsidized through forms like loans, the federal Stafford loan programs, and even non-for-profit status. Universities like Harvard are designated non-for-profits. They're getting tax exemptions that are ultimately subsidized by the taxpayer. And so One really big difference, at least economically, between private universities and private corporations is their access to these public forms of financial assistance. If you're being subsidized, how are you using that money to inform decisions for students being admitted into university? And in conversations I've had with real-life Ivy League graduates, the only real argument they have that's pro-legacy admissions is beefing up endowments. And like admitting people who are loyal to the university and will definitely go there. Right. With the endowments, Harvard has over $50 billion endowment. $50 billion. That's bullshit. So I don't buy that. And so will legacies. Also, is that how we want to run admissions? That if you are willing to essentially bribe the university by donating to the endowment, then that's a guaranteed end? That's your argument? There was a really good op-ed in the journal from a history professor at Harvard who's kind of making the point that, okay, yeah, we're sitting on a $50 billion endowment, but how did we get there, right? So the vast majority of donors feeding into that endowment fund are coming from legacies. Legacies are fiercely passionate about the university and tend to give more money over the long run to these private universities. And one of the points this history professor at Harvard was making is that you need these size of endowments to provide world-class education. Now, whether you buy that or not, I think is a point of contention here, but does 
Harvard and its ilk, even beyond Harvard, if you look down the top 20 universities, I think the smallest endowment fund size, maybe 10 billion or 5 billion, even if you go down to like top 15, they all have massive endowment funds. But are these necessary to provide the world-class level of education that you get from them? And if they are, what role does the fact that donors, the, the heaviest donors to these endowment funds come from legacies? There's probably a vast majority of listeners who are probably screaming right now or feeling like screaming because the money that comes into a Harvard or these Ivy Leagues, they're clearly being touched. They have the fingerprints of public money, right? Because you're saying a federal right. loan. Okay, we are coming from taxpayers, right. right? There's ways that tax-exempt status, right? We talked about, right. I was telling you, Matt, before the show, even the NFL, while not being a traditional nonprofit, they had sort of that tax-exempt status. They were trade association with tax exemption and then pressure bills. And they- <laughs> if you're going to have the legacy admissions thing, right. cool, you can't touch public money at all. Literally, it right. can't have a fingerprint. It can't be federally subsidized. It can't be a federal loan. If you're going to do that legacy thing, cool, then you got to do it straight up. Well, and you can still accept alumni money and not give priority to legacies and admission because MIT does that. So it's, it's, and they've got a significant endowment. That's an interesting point. How recently did they go blind with admissions looking at legacy? I don't think they've ever considered legacy with MIT. They've got a big call out on their website. We don't consider legacy or alumni relations. I think what most people are saying, maybe the people at the table with Bo are going, cool, but the reality is you can say what you want to say, but at the end of the day, he's your dad. That's why you got the job. Look, I think universities are going to succumb to this. That's my prediction. To what? Succumb to giving up legacy admissions. And I think it's not going to be because of economic reasons. Right? I, I don't think ultimately they're going to look at this from an economic lens because if they do, they'd probably come up with the opposite decision. And I also don't think ultimately it will be a legal thing, meaning there are groups mobilizing now citing discrimination from universities who are receiving federal financial assistance. So, But I don't think it's going to be a legal dimension. I think it's a social dimension. I think they're going to succumb because socially there's so much hypocrisy fraught now in legacy admits, particularly after the ruling on affirmative action, meaning, hey, we're not going to use the plight of minorities to inform their qualification status, yet we're willing to inform the advantages of legacies into the admission process. It's just fraught with hypocrisy. So I found an article from 2012 where MIT says really clearly, like the head of admissions, that they do not consider legacy for admissions. I feel like from a social perspective, Matt, to just tack on to what you said, legacy admissions started as a way to not accept as many Jewish and Catholic students and keep the same coming in because obviously Harvard admissions used to be entirely around whether or not you could afford to pay or not. Right. That's the origins of the term legacy. And it's almost universities have hired an advertising agency to like- We're rebranding. Rebranding. It's a rebranding. Yeah. The other thing with Bo's story specifically that I think is really interesting is, okay, we've all agreed that corporate nepotism and cronyism is wrong. Right. But in Bo's situation, we could probably assume that, let's say his father's name is Grant or something, that Grant went to Dartmouth. And so Bo got into Dartmouth because Grant went to Dartmouth. Right. You got the breadcrumbs. Maybe Bo didn't intern at Morgan Stanley, but maybe he got an internship somewhere else where his father knew 
someone who works there and helped him get the internship. And now his father is helping him get the job, which at his company, Morgan Stanley, which we think is wrong. But really, would Bo even be in the place he is today? If Bo wasn't going to make it into Morgan Stanley because of his father's connection, he might have found another connection where maybe the graduate school he went to He had a buddy there who knew someone at Morgan Stanley. And I think what's a really interesting, I think I read it in the journal recently, 80 or 90% of investment bank economists come from the same six graduate schools. There's like a slippery slope here if you're going to apply this rule where it's, you don't have to look at first generation kinship. You could just look at our current institutions. I mean, if six graduate schools are feeding 90% of investment bank economists, then clearly there's some privilege there. I think we can say that Some of the hiring is done on a metric of meritocracy, but you got to admit, you don't get to 90% or 80% if there's not a cult of culture or some bias or form of discrimination that's happening as well. And by the way, on the flip side, we should say, that's not a good thing, right? I mean, the last thing you want in the economy is groupthink. You want diversity of thought, particularly when it comes to the markets. But the point is, it's the slippery slope here. Where do you stop applying this rule? It's human nature. Human beings inherently will hire people and relate to people who look like them and act like them and have the same life experiences they do. And also those six universities are, it's like a shortcut to actually having to vet. It's like how salespeople used to always buy IBMs for their offices because the computer is going to break anyway, but at least you can say like, well, I picked IBM and it's it's not working. So it's not, it's a safe choice. And maybe for the listener right now, if you're willing to do this, if this makes you uncomfortable, I totally get it. But if it doesn't lean in for a second, Let's take it down to the nuclear family and what they do together historically to advance themselves. I'm asking myself, if I'm Bo's dad, I'd probably be doing the same thing for my son. Without having a definitive answer here, let's ask ourselves, while we know on paper, when we're dissociated from this, we can clearly say, yeah, that's unfair, that sucks, that's cronyism, that's nepotism. But if it's your son, or if you're looking at the well-being and the legacy of your family, as illustrated in a very cartoonish way by Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin. They were paying off admissions counselors. There's a world so of I'm difference. saying cartoonish because that is the clear-cut <laughs> example of doing it the yeah. wrong way, where you're literally just bribing people, and you're already at a state of privilege. I don't think anyone is laying blame or culpability on bows or the fathers of bows in the world. I think they're literally laying know. blame on the institutions who are using this in the hiring criteria. Particularly, I think as we made this point numerous times throughout the show, you're taking our taxpayer money. You should not be subsidized to make those decisions. Socially speaking, I don't feel many people, unless you're crossing the lines of legality, like a Felicity Hoffman or a Lori Laughlin, where you're bribing, yes, the scourge of society. But otherwise, you're not going to hold it against Bo. You're not going to hold it against You don't think people are mad at Bo's father? Those people at the table. Matt, you're at the table. You're at the table. (laughs) But you have to attack it at the source, which are the institutions that applying these policies. And then ultimately the government regulations that allow these policies to be applied. And that's where this is going to be litigated. You're going to see this litigated. I think we might be at a turning point. People would blame Bo for getting this job, and they wouldn't blame him for getting into, say, Dartmouth. I think we may be at a little bit of a turning point where people, the same way, and we don't agree with them, that people will look at someone at Dartmouth that doesn't look like them, that comes from an impoverished background, and be like, oh, you're just here because of affirmative action. I think that's going to start happening in reverse. Even 
at a middle school or high school or elementary school level, public school versus a private school, inner city school versus a suburban school, people are way more likely to criticize you for putting your child in a more diverse public school Mm. than like moving to a suburb and putting your child in a good school. And I think people probably need to spend a little bit of time thinking about what does good school mean to them. Right. That's a whole other show topic there. Is it a white school? Is it, are there objectives? I'm not going to take the bait. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway. Aaron, where I thought you were going to go here, and I'd love to hear from you and and you as well. No, not at all. Not at all. I, always, I, I, you just, always. surprised me. Okay. You surprised good, good, me. Good. I thought you were going no, one direction and you, it was a misdirection. Another argument for those, let's call it pro or neutral to legacy admits, is that there's a level of culture, dare I say, religion involved with this phenomena that we have to admit. And here's a perfect example. I'm not a Georgia University or is a Georgia Tech University fan. If you are part of a family lineage of four generations that go to Georgia University and become a Bulldog fan, that has a lot of meaning. It still has a lot of meaning, almost on the level of religion. And I'm I'm not here to say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what it is. I think society has long kind of recognized there's value to certain rituals, to certain cultures, in reinforcing commonality. There's all sorts of embedded values in these cultural functions. And so legacies bring a level of culture and reinforcement to the university setting that pays out not only in more donations, but pays out in other ways, right? That's right. Stronger families. And the family tie here could be both the nuclear family, but also the university family. I mean, I went to UNC. So as a Tar Heel, my grandmother went to UNC. My parents went as well at various points in their college career, not all undergrad. But so I totally get that. I mean, we're very, very strong UNC Tar Heel fans. You can also, as was in the case of my sister, not have the grades, go somewhere else, and then transfer later when you do have the grades to get in. I feel like it's a slippery slope. Mm. Also, my sister's awesome. So, (laughs) (laughs) Leah said something important earlier that I didn't think about in terms of even asking ourselves the question is, what is the origin of legacy? Does it mean keeping the same types of people like you around you? Does it mean keeping other people out. And that very well may be part of the origin of legacy, whether it comes to schools, corporations, or neighborhoods. However, is it all bad? And that's where I was going to go. So no, I think you're right. I actually think that it's a lot more complex than we think because there is something about it in terms of legacy that can be really good. You said community building. Like I would go every summer to Notre Dame to watch, you know, the uh, football with my dad before in the preseason, Catholic school, or maybe there's a community that you're a part of. And it's a big deal. And sometimes, and oftentimes, that can be beneficial to the city, the community. So I do think there is something good about sort of, you know, the alumni association and loving the university because you take care of it and that trickles down. Is there a way to still get there without rigging the game, so to speak, so that legacy admissions are a huge part of the process? I think there's a way that you can still have that kind of pride. You can still build community. Hell, you can still build endowments and you can also make it merit-based. I'll end here and I'll let you guys close it out. There's probably a reason why Bo didn't get a job in six months, but after one interview where his dad worked, he got the job. Yeah. Matt said something earlier. I can't remember the exact context about marketing for the Ivy Leagues and how they've remarked. I think the marketing right now is all around how it's merit-based. It's hard to argue when only 2% of Harvard admissions are from the bottom 20% of 
the income pool and then 70% are from the top 20%. It's hard to argue that it's all merit-based and that those are just the best and the brightest. I really agree that our higher institutions of learning have become very transactional and that's a bad thing, right? Meaning they become hollowed out and it feels like a transaction. And I think we come from a, a history and a philosophy of Western civilization where there's a lot of sanctity and meeting with learning and education, mentor relationships. I'm not saying sharing a common mascot is in of itself the meaning that you need to rely on, but it's not a bad thing. Providing a level of meaning to the university learning experience other than just the transaction of, let me get this diploma so I can get my six-figure salary job. I remember my point now. Sending your kid to an Ivy League school or a top 20 school is the best way to keep wealth in your family if you're looking at things from that perspective. And I think when we're talking about sort of Harvard and all of these schools remarketing themselves, they talk a lot about pulling people up out of poverty, which they do to some extent, but you've they've got to let more people that don't look like them in in order to do that in any sort of significant way. Can I end with one question? If you were at the table and you overheard Bo admit that his dad's an executive that's been there for 20 plus years, how would you react even internally? I've been at that table before a couple of times, to be fair. I mean, that sort of nepotism happens in advertising. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt because you can't choose who your parents are. I've come back to it when someone's underperforming, but not vocally. I don't know. I would I would want to hold things against people. I think I've been there before where a company I was working with, clearly they use some of these networks, right? And whether it's nepotism or cronyism or just kind of a network advantage, that little nuance of difference is everything. I mean, I might hold some judgment, but then probe it. If, you know, if I cared enough, probe it individually with the person just to understand the background and kind of the, the circumstances. But to zoom up just for a second, back to the larger topic here, I do think you can count the days before these legacy admissions get shot down. They're going to get shot down. I don't see these universities being able to justify continuing with legacy admissions after that ruling. I think we're just a year, if not less, before some of these policies get shot down. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 